You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. This year we're in the sesquicentennial year of the uh, start of the Civil War. 150 years ago, uh, the Civil War started. Uh, America, in many ways, America's uh, most devastating uh, and perhaps even important war. And as with most wars, intelligence played its role. And we have a guest, an expert in this topic, to uh, talk with us today about the role of intelligence during the Civil War, particularly on the Union side. Uh, We're very fortunate to have Professor William Feiss, of Buena Vista University in Iowa. Uh, Professor Feiss is an expert in Civil War intelligence and, in fact, is the author of the 2002 book, really fabulous book that I can recommend to you, Grant's Secret Service, The Intelligence War from Belmont to Appomattox. Uh, And uh, Professor Feiss has also, for uh, many years now, been uh, an editor at North and South Magazine. So, Bill Feiss, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you for having me. So we are very used to uh, in, in military commanders these days having sorts, all sorts of intelligence tools at their disposal. They have UAVs, they have signals, uh, intercepts, they have all kinds of fancy sensors, and they're displaying this on electronic maps with flashing lights and all of that sort of thing. Uh, presumably 150 years ago uh, in the Civil War, things were rather different. How did commanders get intelligence uh, in the 1860s? Well, I think commanders would have loved to have had all the gadgets that they had today, although I imagine some of them would be like with the sources they did have. They wouldn't have known what to do with them. But commanders in the Civil War had a variety of sources to choose from, and they all, you never knew when to expect what sources you might get. You would actively pursue some, but you would have uh, some come to you just by sheer happenstance or luck. But typically the, uh, and I'll go not in order of importance, but uh, just in, in, uh, by way of, I think, interest, what people know, uh, spies were used quite extensively in some cases and not at all in others. Uh, spies, however, I think dominate the literature of the field because people tend to know more about them because some of the spies, uh, Rose O'Neill Greenhow, Bell Boyd, wrote memoirs. And even the people who chased them, uh, people like Alan Pinkerton, wrote memoirs about chasing them. And so they became quite famous, and they were, they were self-promoters, um, and they inflated, as they did in many of their stories, they inflated the information they got, the impact they had. 
Um, so spies could be used, and, and were used extensively. It kind of dominates the field uh, when people think about the Civil War. But there were other spies who uh, we, we know of as well. Uh, one, Elizabeth Van Loo, who operated in Richmond. She was a, a diehard Unionist, and she really uh, felt uh, that it was her obligation living in Richmond to be able to provide uh, information or to help any way she could as the federal armies neared uh, Richmond in 1862 and again in 1864. She was very, very adamant in her uh, uh, belief that she should give information uh, to uh, and, and help in whatever way she could to the federal commanders. So she is one on the northern side, but there are, are, are dozens of spies that are out there as well that performed maybe one act of intelligence, and I would wager hundreds we know nothing about who did very little things uh, but maybe significant ones. Um, also there were scouts uh, are paid by the army uh, recruited from the ranks. Uh, men. What's, what's the difference between a scout and a spy here? What does a scout mean to you a, in a civil war context? Right. Scouts were typically, the difference between scouts and spies, spies were typically people who resided behind enemy lines. That's where they stayed and they got their information out through covert uh, uh, messengers. Scouts were typically those employed by the army, uh, either from the ranks, uh, often private soldiers would be recruited. Sometimes you'll see on their, on their muster sheets uh, in, in the course of their enlistment that they were uh, detached for special service on scout duty. Uh, they would go out, they would be paid by the army. They would also collect civilians, uh, typically civilians who either traveled with the army or who were residents of the area behind Union lines who would go back and forth. These uh, men and women typically uh, scouted in between the lines and were more reconnaissance in some ways. They oftentimes would penetrate into enemy lines, but what makes them not a spy is that they would come back and report themselves. Spies stayed behind the lines. They were often used interchangeably uh, in the language, but, uh, but uh, the Army paid scouts much differently than they paid spies. They paid spies a lot more, typically. Okay, so spies and scouts. What other tools did the commanders uh, have at their disposal? They used also reconnaissance, uh, cavalry reconnaissance, uh, visual observation from balloons when they were in use, but those were only really useful in static situations since hauling all of the gear around for the balloons, the gas and all of that was very difficult. And we're talking about tethered balloons. Tethered here, balloons. Free floating balloons. Exactly, although sometimes that happened as well, not by design. <laughs> They also relied on uh, a system of signals, and they built signal towers or found high prominent uh, peaks where they would be able to uh, send ostensibly signals to signal uh, other units, but they also were used for visual observation, uh, visual uh, reconnaissance, if you will. Uh, there were also signal intercepts, again, with uh, on the uh, signal towers as they used the flags. They wig-wagged with the flags, these signals meaning different things. So if the Union is is communicating via signal flags, the Confederates simply could be watching and reading exactly. those same, same signals. Exactly. Um, which was a uh, prime uh, opportunity because both sides knew that if their flags could be seen by a Union out, uh, unit, uh, that probably the Confederates could too. So these could also be used to send false messages, which was done during the war as well. And uh, besides uh, that, there was also intercepting telegraph, the telegraph, a, a, a new thing to war uh, in America, and uh, signal people who knew how to telegraph, who were telegraph operators, would uh, use a device to hook onto the lines, and they would be able to not only read, but also to send their own messages. And it became uh, 
not a large treasure trove of intelligence, but it could, in in some in some aspects and some uh, uh, parts of the war, uh, became a valuable tool to be used. Uh, otherwise, we have uh, other human sources: um, the interrogation of prisoners and enemy deserters and refugees and slaves uh, that the Union Army came upon, and these were often very difficult to assess exactly what these people knew, because oftentimes they were not, even the soldiers in the ranks were not uh, attuned to military organizations uh, beyond maybe their company. Uh, oftentimes these civilian soldiers knew very little about drill, let alone army organization. And so it was very difficult to get at them, but they were very important for assessing uh, order of battle intelligence, being able to tell. Order of battle, perhaps you should explain that term. Order of battle intelligence is um, where you find out the organization of your army, uh, of the enemy army, excuse me. Uh, not only uh, the units and the numbers in each, how many companies in a regiment, how many regiments there are in this brigade. Uh, it also allows you to come do some reasonable assessment, you hope, of their sizes. And if you take deserters from one section of the line from this regiment, you know that that brigade is there. And so then you know where the division is. And so you can place the enemy and you know if he's moving. And you might even find out by the absence of deserters, uh, per, uh, uh, for example, in a large battle, you take all these deserters, but there's no deserters from one division. Uh, you know that division might not be there, and so you might need to be thinking where it might be. Um, and so uh, that sort of information could be very valuable for commanders, but also for a, bar a barometer of morale uh, for the enemy army. Uh, Grant did this in the uh, Wilderness Campaign and after. Uh, one of the things his uh, interrogators asked uh, deserters, POWs, was the state of morale. And sometimes they didn't, did not even ask overtly. They would just merely uh, talk to them and just assess their state. If they were just distraught, their stories of, gosh, everybody's hungry, uh, led Grant to believe that Lee's army was near a breaking point. As a former intelligence analyst, uh, when I was in the business, uh, what we these days call open source intelligence, so things like foreign newspapers, foreign magazines, uh, those sorts of things were a very, very important source for me and all of my colleagues. Was this a comparably important uh, source for uh, intelligence people in the Civil War? Absolutely. Enemy newspapers especially were treasure troves of information, uh, if you knew how to use them correctly, as I'm sure you know. Uh, enemy, uh, our commanders on both sides uh, relished getting enemy newspapers and tried to get a hold of them any way they could. Uh, Grant was a vocifer, uh, uh, was a voracious reader of the, the Richmond papers. Any papers he could lay his hands on, uh, when his intelligence officers got them, they brought them directly to him, and they too assessed them as well. Um, Robert E. Lee loved having uh, newspapers from the North, had great difficulty getting them, in fact complained oftentimes that he had lack of access to the Washington papers. In fact, the, the Confederate uh, State Department had this signal and secret service that had a line of, of uh, communication between Washington and Richmond. One of their main goals or main missions was to get newspapers from the North to Richmond, and they were uneven in their ability to do that. So did commanders look on reporters as a security threat in some sense? They did, absolutely. 
uh, security threats, but also assets if, if, used, if used correctly. But reporters hung around headquarters looking for stories. If you look at, at Civil War newspapers and, and assess the battle reports and things, you'll see that they, the reporters report movements, they report who is where, and those sorts of things could be devastating to a, a commander. So it was, some tried to keep them away. William Tecumseh Sherman believed they were nothing better than spies and, and should be uh, uh, executed as a result of that. Uh, he did not do that, but I know he banished them from his camp, but he realized they were a leak that he, could, he needed to plug. So commanders had all sorts of potential intelligence tools and assets and ways of getting information about the enemy. Um, were there organized structures and uh, for doing this uh, when the war broke out? And were officers, say, who'd gone to West Point, were they trained and educated in how to think about intelligence and how to do intelligence? Or was this more sort of made up on the fly as the war progressed? The officers who served in the Civil War on both sides, uh, even those who were products of uh, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, did not have a lot of experience or a training, uh, formal training, or even formal reading in intelligence matters. They would have known instinctively from uh, reading some of the things. They would have had access to uh, Germany's works uh, that, that uh, finding out what's going on on the other side of the hill is a good thing to know. And that, that was kind of an instinctive thing. And I think it, what West Point, an engineering school, it was, it was designed for officers to come out and be engineers. That was the Corps of Engineers was the prime uh, appointment. Uh, so if you're an infantry officer, you may have found yourself uh, really having to make it up as you went along with regard to intelligence, which most did. Uh, and then you get the Civil War where a very small proportion are West Point officers. Most of the officers are from civilian life. They know even less about that. That did not inhibit their ability, however, because some, uh, some of the intelligence officers in the Civil War were civilians who did quite well at what they did. One West Point graduate, of course, not a particularly auspicious one, was Ulysses S. Grant, who's the, the focus of your book. And you argue that he was actually a very savvy consumer and user of intelligence. How did this come about? How did he see the light? By experience. And I think it started in the Mexican War, um, in the battles around Mexico, uh, Mexico City. He criticized, in a couple of letters home, he criticized Winfield Scott's uh, inability to, to really uh, to assess what's going on with the enemy and thought that, that Scott was actually making some mistakes based on the information Grant knew. Um, now, he was just a captain at the time, so he was not going to go tell Winfield Scott that he was mistaken. But that, I think, was kind of a beginning point um, that he realized that it was those sorts of things. And I saw an in indication he understood those things. Uh, when the war broke out, it was really experience. Uh, before 1862, April of 62, uh, Grant dabbled with intelligence. He sent people out. He wanted to find out, but he was in a static position uh, in Cairo, Illinois for a while. Then he went after Forts Henry and Donaldson um, based on really very little intelligence. At Shiloh, the surprise at Shiloh, I think woke him up to the fact that sometimes just thinking that you're going to beat the enemy and you know where he is and he's waiting for you is a recipe for disaster because it takes out uh, the element of the enemy's uh, vote in the matter. And so war, war is interactive after absolutely, that. absolutely, and the enemy always has uh, a say in the outcome, and so after that, he began to realize, especially as he 
in the summer of 1862, he was dormant. Uh, after the capture of Corinth, he sat there with his army, and he was very nervous about that because the Confederates were all over the place, and he did not know where they were. And so that's when he uh, he got the services of General Grenville Dodge, who set up an intelligence organization at Corinth. His main mission was to find out where the Confederates were in Mississippi, but also to watch Confederates uh, in Tennessee to prevent Confederate armies from Tennessee uh, coming into Grant's rear to reinforce them and to upend his plans to take Vicksburg. And so Dodge became his intelligence officer more in a strategic sense because Dodge was watching kind of the theater uh, and, and Grant really relied on him heavily for his movements in the Vicksburg campaign to, to uh, tell him where the enemy was and uh, if he had to deal with a larger force than he already had. So when Grant came east then, he inherited something called the Bureau of Military Information. I take it right. Dodge stayed in the west, but uh, Grant yeah. came east and inherited the BMI. Can you tell right. us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, when he left Dodge, Dodge's intelligence work uh, basically was over. Uh, and that's what happened a lot in the Civil War when a commander who used these organizations when they left the theater or were replaced, uh, oftentimes those organizations blew away. The exception to that is uh, the Bureau of Military Information, the Army of the Potomac. Uh, it was uh, actually, there's a lineage that goes back to McClellan's, uh, George McClellan's uh, Information Bureau, if you will, headed by Alan Pinkerton in 1861. Pinkerton was more interested in uh, spies and getting information from behind enemy line and also uh, interrogation of enemy deserters and prisoners. Um, and so it was somewhat limited. The other sources of information uh, he did not bring into his organization to assess and analyze. But when McClellan was replaced in 1862, Pinkerton packed up shop, went home. There was one officer, however, who had served with him, actually not an officer, a civilian by the name of John Babcock, who remained with the Army and was a transition when, when Joseph Hooker took command and created this organization. Babcock became kind of a, a, a seed of this organization and really had an influence on, on its uh, progression. It was headed by George Sharp, and Sharp was a pretty savvy guy, a lawyer from, from New York. John Babcock was an architect from Chicago. Uh, between the two of them, add the services of a guy named John McEntee, they became a, a triumvirate of sorts that was a, a tremendously gifted group of men, not only in their ability to collect information and how to get it, but also in their analysis of it, particularly order of battle intelligence. So we should not be thinking here in terms of a large intelligence staff. I mean, you just mentioned three people. Right, right. The, the main staff at the headquarters of the Army of the Potomac was essentially three men for a very long time under Hooker, under Meade. Uh, when Grant came east to take general command of the armies, Meade remained in command. Uh, George Meade remained in command of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, the BMI stayed at his headquarters, but Grant brought George Sharp to the overall headquarters uh, to coordinate those activities, which we see then the BMI blossoms into a much larger organization with branch units in the armies operating in the Shenandoah Valley, at Fortress Monroe, and even in North Carolina, uh, watching Essentially, the, uh, the BMI officer in, in North Carolina's mission was to watch the progress of William Tecumseh Sherman's campaigns, because Grant followed him through the newspapers and through his BMI officer. That's how he knew where he was. Ultimately, intelligence is something that is done to give some sort of advantage to a commander, to a leader, to a decision maker. 
and, and the, the metric of success is not a cool spy operation that succeeds. The metric of success is did the, the leader, you know, was he enabled to do the right thing? Um, in what way or to what extent did these various intelligence operations uh, actually help grant exercise command uh, out east? Are there particular successes that you can point to where intelligence really made a difference? Right. There was uh, a, a classic moment, um, rather unknown, uh, that came on the heels of a disaster uh, in, in, the, in June of 1864. Uh, Jubal Anderson Early, a Confederate Corps commander, uh, was ordered to leave. Uh, it's in the midst of this campaign for Richmond. Grant is closing in. And in the midst of this, before Grant crosses the James River to invest both Petersburg and Richmond, Jubal Early is ordered to head to the valley and to head into Maryland to stir up trouble. And he gets away. Uh, he gets to the valley. He moves his way uh, down the valley towards the Potomac River. And Grant has no idea he's gone. Um, and it's a, a classic intelligence failure because uh, Grant did not access the BMI at that time like he should have. Before this time, it was very mobile, and there was lots of movement. And so the BMI was not as effective. But they had not taken prisoners from Early's Corps for some time. And Grant finally discovered that, managed to send the Sixth Corps to Washington to protect the outskirts uh, when early attacked at Fort Stevens. Um, and what happened after that is Grant realized that he needed to, to know where Lee was and to keep traps on him. That was a, it was a, you know, kind of one of those moments that, gosh, you know, bing, I know what I need to do now. But what he did after that was he knew that Jubal Early remained in the Shenandoah Valley and that he wanted to keep Lee and Early and their operations separate. He wanted to cut them off from connection to each other. And so he established uh, a BMI presence in the Army in the Valley. And what he managed to do was, uh, in the fall of 1864, using intelligence both in the Valley and the BMI outside of Richmond and Petersburg, uh, it became known that there had been a division that was sent uh, from Lee's Army to the Valley. Um, and that this val uh, that this uh, this uh, division, or excuse me, that this there was a division uh, in Early's army that was being sent to Richmond. It was found out in the valley that this division was leaving. It was a division of Joseph Kershaw, and once Kershaw left, uh, uh, Philip Sheridan, the Union commander, attacked. Uh, Kershaw's division started to go back. They realized through intelligence that Kershaw's division was going back. Grant launched his fall offensives. What, what it meant uh, around Richmond and Petersburg, what it meant was that Kershaw's division was essentially isolated between the Valley and Richmond and unable to aid in either effort. And some historians um, have weighed in on this and said that had Kershaw been present in the Valley, it may have been a different story. Uh, had he been uh, present in Richmond, that he could have been very useful in, in the attacks uh, in the fall of 1864. You mentioned earlier Colonel George Sharp. Uh, I understand he played a rather remarkable and interesting role in the surrender at Appomattox. Yes, he did. This is a great uh, testament to, this, to the success of the BMI in really getting a handle on the order of battle of Lee's Army in Northern Virginia. And this is really one of those things that is a great intelligence story that is an unknown, and it seems so mundane, and it is. Um, it's not what you think of as the spy thrillers and, and all of the gadgets that you have here in this wonderful museum, uh, that this was simply uh, 
a long process of understanding your enemy's organization uh, led to a great amount of success in the war. But Sharp, um, by the time, actually by 1863, he had a very good handle on Lee's Army in Northern Virginia, and a handle, I, I, might, I might add, a handle that Lee never had of the Army of the Potomac. Lee never had a good order of battle of the Army of the Potomac, and in fact, it must have been a mental one because we found very little indication that he had charts that Babcock or Sharp did of the Army of the Potomac, and it was all in Lee's head, um, and at times uh, not very accurate. But George Sharp uh, is tasked by Grant at Appomattox with uh, with handing out the paroles to Lee's army, and this was going to be a very difficult task and a long task. But uh, Sharp undertook this, and for four days, Lee's army, its soldiers, its officers filed by, and he issued paroles, but he would ask them what, what company, what uh, regiment, brigade, division they belonged to. And uh, he knew the order of battle in his mind, and so he knew when they were mistaken. And what he found quickly was that they were very disorganized by the retreat, and, that they, and even before that, there had been so much uh, combining of brigades because Lee's army was shrinking that many of the soldiers and a lot of the officers had no idea about their organization. And so he's taking these mental notes as they go by, and he complains that this became very laborious and very tedious. But then uh, I have no doubt that as he sat there um, and these officers came up and said, I don't know, or mistakenly said, I belong to this brigade or division, that Sharp no doubt relished after all of these long years of work at this moment of victory, telling them which brigade division they actually belonged to. He relished how right he had it, probably. Absolutely. Thinking about the war in its totality then, how important was intelligence? How much of a contribution did or did it not make to the conduct and the outcome of the war? I don't think we can say that intelligence in the Civil War had the same impact that we now know intelligence and uh, the ultra-secret had on World War II. That was truly where intelligence played a, a critical role. Uh, it also shows, I think, in that in aspect in World War II that the reliance on that kind of intelligence, once you get reliant on it, can come back to bite you as well as the Battle of the Bulge showed. But I think in the Civil War, it adds a texture to what we know about the war and how decisions were made at the time. Uh, it certainly made me look at Grant much differently. The idea that he was somebody who just took the initiative and his whole, his whole uh, idea of victory was to just forge ahead and, and throw people in and just outnumber them and overwhelm the enemy. And I think that, was, that, was, that always troubled me because that was always the image of Grant. And again, some of that was created to... to that he was about bludgeoning the enemy. Yes, yes. And that's all there was. And that, uh, of course, uh, those who love Lee love to cite that story because that makes them, uh, Lee look, uh, you know, well, he was a master tactician and a master strategist, but he was beaten by this guy who had a lot of guys who threw him at him. And we ran out of guys. But... The intelligence story showed me, at least in Grant's, and I think for people like William Rosecrans uh, and even McClellan, that they understood the importance of intelligence. McClellan's flaws as a commander, I think intelligence were clearly a, a part of, of his difficulty and failure. Uh, for Rosecrans, uh, William Rosecrans in the Western theater, uh, the same. But for Grant, I see a guy who learned from his mistakes and learned to appreciate intelligence but not become too reliant on it, to realize that there were other ways that you have to account for the fact that uncertainty is absolutely 
uh, the essence of war and that you have to manage it, you have to, to live it and work through it, that intelligence can help you, but it cannot solve all your problems. But it, it gave a nuance to his command and his thinking that I found absolutely uh, fascinating. I think the same could be done for Confederates. Records are a little bit more difficult to find, uh, but a study of, of Confederates and intelligence would be interesting as well. And I think we might find that they were maybe not as good <laughs> as everyone has thought uh, they were. Well, perhaps that can be your next book then. Uh, I'll, I'll just close with this then, uh, I guess sort of on that note. Obviously, whatever the Confederates were doing and in intelligence, uh, as with everything else, did not survive. Uh, the Confederacy itself did not survive. Did these Union intelligence efforts, which while perhaps not large, were ultimately fairly impressive and fairly sophisticated, did any of this survive the war? Is this sort of the... The, the, the predecessor, can we draw a line from what was done in the Civil War to American military intelligence in the 20th, 20th century? Well, Mark, you'll correct me if I'm wrong since you know a lot about this. I think that from my understanding of it, from what I have seen, the lessons of the, the Civil War were uh, essentially either intentionally or just by uh, neglect. When the armies demobilized, these civilian officers went home. Uh, George Sharp went back home to be a lawyer. He did some work for the government, but there was really no uh, sense that there could, uh, that this was something that was going to be preserved. Uh, they scattered to the wind, and I think we found uh, that that was very common. Uh, and few officers wrote except uh, here and there in their own memoirs about information and how they did that and so all of it's having to piece it together so a collective institutional memory in the army uh, really did not survive the Civil War uh, George Sharp was urged by John Babcock uh, to write a history of the BMI uh, and Babcock said write it and keep it somewhere where no one will see it until it can come out later. And essentially what Babcock was saying was, we need to have this story because I think it's important, but it's clearly not something we can tell right now. And that was a problem many uh, Union commanders had was because so many of the people they used were Southerners, Southern Unionists, who still lived in the South to have divulged their identity in Reconstruction or the period after might have been detrimental to their health. Did Sharp, in fact, write such a history? Not that I have been able to find. I believe he died um, a few years after that letter, but I do not think that he, he did. I, I, I searched. One of the first things I did as a graduate student is I looked for that, and I thought, oh, if I could find that, it would be wonderful. But I didn't find it, and then I thought, well, good for me, because now I can write the story of the BMI, especially under Grant. So I was actually was fortunate, but if it is found, then I can uh, look at it and see where I went wrong. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's a, history is always changing, let's just put it that, that way. Is you, you never know what, what's going to turn up in some unexpected location. Absolutely. But thank you, uh, thank you, Bill Feist, for a fascinating discussion of intelligence in the Civil War. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable topic. And I really applaud you for the fabulous work you've done. And as I say, let me just encourage everyone to read your book, Grant Secret Service, a, a fabulous read. And I think a lot can be learned from it uh, about this often neglected aspect of the Civil War. So thank you again. It was my pleasure. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.